1521, at the Diet of Worms, Martin Luther was asked to recant his writings. Luther responded, Unless I am convinced from the sacred scriptures that I am in error, I cannot and will not recant. Here I stand, I cannot do otherwise. God help me. Amen. Will you stand with us as we proclaim these Reformation truths in the 21st century? You can take your stand by becoming a monthly or annual contributor to Issues Etc. Find out the benefits of becoming an Issues Etc. confessor, apologist, reformer, or patron on the Support Donate page at issuesetc.org. Click the picture of Martin Luther posting the 95 Theses. Help us proclaim the solas of the Reformation. Scripture, faith, grace, and Christ alone. Here we stand, Issues Etc. and you. Reformation hymn, Salvation Unto Us, has come. That is the hymn of the day for this coming Sunday, observed in many churches as Reformation Sunday. Should we be observing the Reformation? It is undoubtedly a solid historical event in the church's history, a pivotal event there. But should we be observing it as a Sunday? And if so, what are we actually observing? Is it Martin Luther Sunday? Is it... uh, just a history lesson from the pulpit to remind us about our theological heritage? Is it simply the repeating of the mottos or the mantras of the Reformation? Scripture alone, faith alone, grace alone, Christ alone. What is Reformation Sunday for, and what do the propers do, especially when they're not firmly connected to the gospel reading appointed for that particular Sunday. Greetings and welcome to Issues Etc., coming to you live from the studios of Lutheran Public Radio in Collinsville, Illinois. I'm Todd Wilkin. Thanks for tuning us in. We'll be looking forward to Reformation Sunday with Pastor David Peterson, departmental editor of Gottesdienst, the Journal of Lutheran Liturgy, here in the first hour or so of the program. And after that, it's Issues Etc. Reformation Week. Our theme is Paths to Lutheranism. We'll talk about the path from Calvinism with Dr. Leonard Payton, author of a column for the Issues Etc. journal titled From Possibility to Reality. Joining us to look forward to Reformation Sunday, according to the one-year lectionary, Pastor David Peterson, pastor of Redeemer Lutheran Church in Fort Wayne, Indiana. He's departmental editor of Gottesdienst, the Journal of Lutheran Liturgy. David, welcome back. Thanks, Todd. Ordinarily, the propers on any given Sunday are keyed to the gospel. Everything hangs off the gospel, like ornaments from a tree. But on Reformation Sunday, and this is something I actually found somewhat annoying during my parish ministry— It doesn't do that. The propers don't key off the gospel the same way. Why is that? Well, we don't have a life or an event in the life of Christ that's directly related because, of course, the Reformation is commemorating this historic event of how the church was reformed at the time of Luther with Luther and other people. And instead, really, rather than keying off an event, 
in the life of Christ, it's really keying off of the doctrine of justification, that upon which the church really stands or falls. So you can hang the doctrine of justification on anything that Jesus ever did or said, because it's everything that he, that he is. But you're right, it doesn't have the same kind of intimate connection that, say, Christmas or Easter or Ascension or something like that does. So where does the observation of the Reformation come from? Obviously, it's not being uh, observed by the Church before the Reformation. How would you describe its history? The Lutherans almost right away start to observe it and recognize that it, it, it needs to be commemorated as a significant event. So the parish order for the new church in Regensburg in 1567, so at the 50th anniversary of the 95 Theses, there was a city ordinance that they were going to observe observe Reformation, commemorate Reformation on the 15th of October, not the 31st. And then a couple years later in Pomeria, uh, the Reformation is going to be observed on St. Martin's Day, uh, the 11th November, the day that Luther was born. And then it's at the 100th anniversary of the 95 Theses that it begins celebrated throughout Germany in all of the Protestant churches on October 31st as we know it. The first annual observance was instituted, however, by John George II, Elector of Saxony, in the places where he ruled in 1667. And then a standard annual observation began not until actually about 1717. So it was kind of always out there, but they had a while, it took a while to kind of cement it and figure out where it was going to stand. I think it's interesting that the service book and hymnal, which is a Lutheran hymnal from, I can't remember if it's the ALC or the LCA, one of the predecessor bodies to the current ELCA, the service book and hymnal from 1958 includes a rubric that allows congregations to observe Reformation on the last Sunday in October every year and all saints on the first Sunday in November every year, and in both cases uh, replacing then the normal Sunday that would fall according to the church year. And uh, according to Wikipedia, how reliable this is, I don't know, but that's a pretty widespread practice of Lutherans in America to always observe Reformation on a Sunday and All Saints. And I don't know why we don't have a rubric like that in the Lutheran hymnal, Lutheran worship, or Lutheran service book. Those are the Missouri Synod hymnals. Uh, I think it would be a good rubric. And in fact, I think it's a pretty widespread practice. And I think it's a great practice. I think it's reasonable to celebrate this every single year. On a Sunday. So, Pastor Peterson, I guess the the natural question here is, since it is what I would call an occasion rather than a festival, to kind of set in contrast to the Catholic historic practice, why observe Reformation on a Sunday? Well, we really need to be constantly made aware of this or, or made re-aware of this, that we need to be realigned and corrected by the Bible. Um, and this isn't... Uh, isolated to post-biblical times. Ezra rediscovered the Feast of Booths. I mean, it's just an astounding thing that that had been lost completely. Josiah discovered Deuteronomy. They'd lost one-fifth of the Torah. So they had to be, they rediscovered God's Word, and by it they were brought back into conformity to repentance and faith. And that's not only a mirror of what happened in the 16th century, but also those are demonstrations to us that this is a pattern for the sinful minds of men, right? That we are prone to abusing and to neglecting God's word, and so we need to be called back to it. We need to be warned of the dangers of that happening. So I would say the things to avoid in Reformation observation is, in the first place, though, 
when we do this, we want to actually preach the texts, the Bible texts. This isn't just a history lesson. The next thing is we want to avoid kind of triumphalism or just beating dead horses, you know, the Pope, indulgences, the Medici, that sort of thing. That's not the purpose of our corporate worship. We are not gathering on Sunday morning to correct the Pope. He won't be there. We're gathering to be corrected, and we're gathered to be reminded of how God justifies us in Christ. The other thing I think we need to avoid is kind of Luther worship. We need to thank God for Luther because we are thankful to God for him. But we aren't gathering, again, simply for a history lesson or to celebrate this great man. And we should certainly not lose sight of the fact that Luther's only a man, and he he can be our greatest teacher, but he's still a human. He said plenty of stupid things. He did a few stupid things. So we're not there to celebrate Luther. We gather on Sunday morning to receive the forgiveness of sins and hear God's word. And then regarding the solas, I would just issue a couple of warnings that, you know, we simply can't just spout the solas. If you want to use one of them as a lens to look at a biblical text, great. But you need to take the time to explain that the solas themselves are polemical slogans that occurred or came about after the Reformation. So the point of them, for example, sola scriptura, is not that we are denigrating tradition and it's just me and my Bible alone. Rather, it's that scripture alone is the sole source and norm for doctrine and life. That is that we obey God rather than men. And yet, part of obeying God and not men is obeying the fourth commandment. And so we honor our fathers in the faith, and we do follow tradition, and we're thankful for it. So sola scriptura doesn't mean no tradition. Sola scriptura means this is the only real and lasting authority, and that we have to measure everything else by. In a similar way, sola fide and sola gratia do not mean that faith exists apart from works, or that our works are not pleasing to God or useful to our neighbors. Our works, in fact, were created by God, they are useful to our neighbors, and they are pleasing to him in faith. What we mean by sola fide and sola gratia is simply that works don't add to our salvation or make us holy, but rather that we receive this by faith alone, not with works, works follow, and so forth. So they can be useful as a way to look at the text and to preach, but they need some explanation and they need to be set into the context that they are, in fact, polemical slogans. They're not doctrinal statements. We are looking forward to Reformation Sunday on this Tuesday afternoon. Pastor David Peterson of Gottesdienst is our guest when we come back. We'll get into the intro for Reformation Sunday, Psalm 119 and Psalm 34. Issues Etc. regular guest, Pastor Brian Ketchelmeyer, is the author of our book of the month for October, Reading Isaiah with Luther. It's published by Concordia Publishing House. Their phone number, 1-800-325-3040. Or you can browse before you buy at issuesetc.org. Learn how the conscience is a gift from God and how only through Christ can you receive a clean conscience in Reading Isaiah with Luther, the Issues Etc. book of the month, Reading Isaiah with Luther. Concordia University Chicago is the distinctive, comprehensive university of the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. We're committed to increasing LCMS faculty and staff members. This is Dr. Daniel Gard, president of Concordia University Chicago. If you are a member of the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod with excellent professional credentials, please consider applying for our faculty or staff family. 
Current openings are posted at cuchicago.edu slash hr. Sanctifying your daily errands with the Word of God. You're listening to Issues Etc. I like to think of the deaconess vocation as driven by two things, the love of Christ and the needs of our neighbor. Issues Etc. regular guest, Dr. James Busher, Director of Deaconess Studies at Concordia Theological Seminary, Fort Wayne, Indiana, on the vocation of deaconess. First, the deaconess is moved by the love of Christ, who came not to be served, but to serve. Yet I think we can also see the profound needs around us, broken families, loneliness, despair. Deaconesses help the church to become a true family that manifests the love of Christ in our love for one another, and especially for those in need. For more information on the Deaconess Studies program at Concordia Theological Seminary, Fort Wayne, Indiana, visit ctsfw.edu or call Concordia Theological Seminary at 1-800-481-2155, 800-481-2155. looking forward to Reformation Sunday with Pastor David Peterson, pastor of Redeemer Lutheran Church in Fort Wayne, Indiana, and departmental editor of God Estinct's The Journal of Lutheran Liturgy. Let's get into the propers themselves now and begin with the introit, which is from Psalm 119 and Psalm 34. So for the antiphon, that's the part that we have at the beginning of the intro and then after the Gloria Patri, Psalm 119, verse 46, I will speak of thy testimonies also before kings, and I will not be ashamed. This is probably meant by whoever put this together to invoke Luther himself standing before, at the Diet of Worms and elsewhere. Now, some people might think that that's arrogant, but I don't think that's arrogant at all, because Luther and the Reformers, in fact, did put their lives on the line, and the Reformation is seriously, the most significant event in the history of the church, at least since the Council of Nicaea. It really can't be overstated. It was the moment that God chose to reform the church. But more than simply seeing Luther as the fulfillment of this verse, of this antiphon, we should also recognize that we are being called to fulfill this as well, that we are called to speak God's word and truth to our superiors, whether that's to our bosses or our fathers-in-law or a teacher at school. And there is, of course, a temptation to be ashamed, to avoid the truth because of the fear of consequences. And so it's not just that Luther is an inspirational example, but there is an example that God, in fact, does empower his people and give them the words when they need it, and we need them on a daily basis. Then the body of the intro, it is Psalm 34, verses 1 and 2, and then 11 and 12. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul shall make her boast in the Lord. The humble shall hear thereof and be glad. Come, ye children, hearken unto me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. The Lord redeemeth the soul of his servants, and none of them that trust in him shall be desolate. 
So the first part of this, we get this praise. He's, David is blessing and praising God. He wrote this after he had been delivered from Abimelech by acting as though he was a lunatic so that Abimelech would not be threatened by him and would let him go. Now, there's a correspondence to David acting crazy to the son of David, whose humiliation fooled the devil into thinking that he could not overcome him, and also in the sense that judged by the ways of men, God has to be insane to send his own son to endure the shame of the cross for the sake of his enemies. And yet, of course, it's precisely this insanity that's wisdom, and it is by this that he ceases to be a threat to sinners and we can approach him. So that's the cause of David's praise. And then that's why we get this language of my soul shall make her boast in the Lord. The word that's translated here as boast is the verb in the word hallelujah. So hallelujah is two words in Hebrew. This word boast and Lord, Yah, at the end there is Yahweh. So boast in Yahweh. We usually translate it though as praise Yahweh or praise the Lord. But it really would be better translated, more accurate to say boast. In the Old Testament in particular in the Psalms, Praise is not really directed toward God. In other words, it's not me telling God, you're so great. That's not really praise. What praise is in the Old Testament is about God, and it's in God's presence, but it's directed to the neighbor. So it's not me telling God how great it is. It's me telling other people how great God is because of what God is doing or has done. It praises God for his actions in creation, both in creating, recreating, and also in redeeming. So what we get here in Psalm 34 is very typical. David is boasting of how God delivered him, not only from Abimelech, but also and ultimately from eternal death. Now, this is a a, a great correspondence, it seems to me, to an overarching Reformation reality, and that is that the hymns of the Reformation, like Salvation Unto Us Has Come, which is the hymn of the day, follow the pattern of biblical praise and the Psalms. Whereas what we often kind of typify or speak of as so-called praise music in North America does not. Really what praise music in North America is, is probably what the Bible call adoration. That is, it's about the feelings and experience of the one singing, and it's being sung by the singer directly to God. And most of it, frankly, really isn't fit for public worship. I mean, it's kind of, if it has a place, it's probably kind of a private devotion sort of thing. So what goes on here in Psalm 34, a kind of doctrinal treatise and rehearsal of what God has done as being the reason to boast and to tell other people, fits very well. The next thing I wanted to touch on was this uh, filial fear. In uh, verse 11 of Psalm 34, we get this definition, really, of what filial fear is. So filial is the Latin word for son or child. So come ye children, hearken unto me, I will teach you the fear of the Lord. Two verses earlier, it's not in the intro, but it's in the psalm. Two verses earlier, David had said explicitly, quote, O fear the Lord, you his saints, for there is no want in them that fear him. So the fear that David here is calling us to, that he might teach us is not the fear that is cast out by perfect love, which uh, John writes of in 1 John. The, the fear that is cast out by perfect love is what we call servile fear. That is the fear of a slave of punishment. So there's a place for that. We, on this side of glory, we also experience, thanks be to God, servile fear. So we rightly fear God's wrath, and we attempt to obey the commandments because we don't want to be punished. The time will come, and that's what John's speaking of, when that servile fear will be cast out. 
But the time will not come when we will not fear God, because David calls us to fear the Lord and therein to be free of all want. So part of the fear that we have now, and which will be fulfilled and perfected in us on the last day, is filial fear. That is, the fear of children for their father. We have this now. It's part of sanctification. Because our sins have been forgiven, God has caused us to love him as children love their father. And this love, this fear, is not the love that you experience between friends or between lovers. It's particular to children to their father. It includes respect and awe, reverence. It's a desire as well to be like our father. It causes us to imitate him. I mean, sometimes we even, if you think of little children who they want to like the things that their dads like. So I always think of our kids, you know, wanting to have a sip of beer and they could barely stand it, but they'd pretend like they liked it. Why? Because they wanted to be like me. And this is, this is filial fear. And we do this. I mean, human children do this for human fathers, but people forgiven by God in Christ Jesus do this for God. They want to love the things that he loves. And so we're not looking at God like our peer, our best friend. Filial fear doesn't say, Jesus, take the wheel, nor does it boast that God will love me no matter what and that no one can snatch me out of his hand. So there might be a place for some of that, but it's a different sort of response to the gospel and a different part of faith. What filial fear says is, amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever, amen. That is the song of the saints as seen by St. John. It takes the lower seat gladly, and it's only going to come up higher if asked, but it doesn't really have any expectation of being asked. Filial fear is the fear of the son who was asked to go to work in the vineyard and said no, but then repented and went because it wants to do good works. It wants to please the Father, and it wants to be like him. So David is calling us to this, and I think this distinction between filial fear and servile fear could be remarked upon more in our circles than it usually is. And in the next verses, immediately following that verse, come children, hearken, and I will teach you the fear of the Lord, immediately David follows this up with a description of the good life That is what it is to be blessed. And what the good life is in the Bible is obedience to the law. Obedience to the law is not some burden for spiritually inferior people, but it's the ideal. It's the way that Jesus lived. It's the way that we want to live. It's the way we were meant to live. And it's the way that actually is satisfying and fulfilling. So verse 12, 13, and 14 of Psalm 34 continue. David says, What man is he that desireth life and loveth many days that he may see good? Keep thy tongue from evil, and thy lips from speaking guile. Depart from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. The collect, what is it, and how would you instruct us in its contents? We pray, O Lord God, Heavenly Father, pour out your Holy Spirit upon your faithful people. Keep us steadfast in your grace and truth. Protect and deliver us in times of temptation. Defend us against all enemies and grant to your church your saving peace. So the color for Reformation is red. Some people have complained about that, said it ought to be violet because we ought to be repenting. I think that's ridiculous. I mean, I guess it has a point, but we're not repenting for trying to call the church to reform and for proclaiming the true doctrine and uh, contradicting the false. I mean, if that caused division, that's not our fault. In any case, the color is red, it should be red, and that's because we rightly associate the Reformation with Pentecost. Why? 
Well, because we understand that God poured out his Holy Spirit on the Reformers to give them insight, courage, and strength, that they would face the emperor and the pope and even defy them rather than disobey God. That they really, it was an extraordinary time. They were extraordinary people, but they didn't do this because they were so great. They did this because the Spirit was upon them, and God be praised for it. So this collect takes that reality, that God poured his Holy Spirit upon the Reformers, and asks that God would do the same thing for us, that he would pour out his Holy Spirit on us, so that we would be kept steadfast in his grace and truth, be protected and delivered from temptation, be defended from all enemies, and given his saving peace. All that is really, in a sense, to say, O God, make us the church of Ezra, Josiah, Peter, and Luther. Make us the church that comes back. Keep us uh, in your word. And because this is not a charismatic prayer, we're not just asking that God would just, you know, send his Holy Spirit down upon us randomly from the clouds in some unexpected way, but rather this is a prayer that recognizes that the Holy Spirit comes in his word, and there he keeps his people, protects and defends his people, and grants them peace. We're talking with Pastor David Peterson, and we're looking forward to Reformation Sunday when we come back the first reading from Revelation 14, which has a long pedigree in the observation of the Reformation. Stay tuned. Life in the ministry can be very blessed and very, very hard. It's well known that church workers experience high rates of burnout, depression, and mental illness. But why? And what can be done about it? Join Beverly Yonke, Todd Peppercorn, Heidi Gaiman, and others as they explore answers to tough questions about the ministry and mental health in the October issue of The Lutheran Witness. Subscribe today at cph.org witness. The Lutheran Witness, interpreting the contemporary world from a Lutheran Christian perspective. When the historian's ideological bias distorts or ignores evidence from the past, a bad kind of revisionism emerges. Dr. Mark Kaltoff of Hillsdale College, talking about his presentation at the Fall 2018 Issues Etc. Making the Case Conference. It masquerades as honest history. Such revisionism needs to be exposed and dismantled. It undermines proper understanding of our world. It has been said those who do not remember the past are condemned to repeat it. In this case, failure to expose bad revisionism means that those who do not know the past are condemned to suffer at the hands of biased ideologues who claim they do. You can meet and hear Dr. Mark Kaltoff making the case against revisionist history at the Issues Etc. Making the Case Conference Friday, November 9th and Saturday, November 10th in Dallas, Texas. Learn more and register at issuesetc.org or call 618-223-8385. He's the most Lutheran man in the world. I'm not always in Pensacola, Florida, but when I am, I attend Emmanuel Lutheran Church. Congregation of Emmanuel Lutheran Church of Pensacola, Florida invites you to join us for divine services on Sundays at 8 or 10.30, Sunday school and Bible class at 9.15. Whether you're in Pensacola to enjoy the white sandy beaches of the Emerald Coast or for military training, we invite you to join us. Jesus is here. Word, water, bread and wine for you. Emmanuel, God with us. Stay Lutheran, my friends. Your daily Lutheran Bible class. You're listening to Issues Etc. LCMS Rural and Small Town Mission exists to support and encourage congregations in rural and small town settings. In partnership with LCMS districts, RSTM is uniquely positioned to make a major impact in revitalization support, community engagement and outreach training, congregational partnership development, and worker support, 
through providing and developing resources geared specifically to rural and small-town congregations. Check us out at lcms.org rstm or give us a call at our office. We're here to help. Can you remain a Christian if you stay away from church on Sunday mornings? I've written a column in the latest Issues Etc. journal titled, Why Do You Go to Church? We'll send it to you for free. Just click the red journal subscription button in the right-hand column at issuesetc.org. In the Wittenberg Trail feature, Dr. Mark Seifried writes about his journey from being a Baptist seminary professor to becoming a Lutheran seminary professor. It's the free online Issues Etc. journal, issuesetc.org. Welcome back to Issues Etc. I'm Todd Wilkin. We're looking forward to Reformation Sunday. Pastor David Peterson is our guest. On Reformation Sunday, we do end up talking about Martin Luther quite a bit. The Issues Etc. Book of the Month for October is a riff on the lectures of Martin Luther as an Old Testament scholar on the book of Isaiah. He writes this in one of his lectures, As for you, be content with God incarnate. Then you will remain in peace and safety, and you will know God. Cast off speculations about divine glory, as the Pope and Muhammad speculate. You stay with Christ crucified, whom Paul and others preach. Luther finding Christ and him crucified, as he lectures on the Old Testament book of Isaiah, you'll find more just like that in the Issues Etc. Book of the Month for October, called Reading Isaiah with Luther, written by Issues Etc. regular guest, Pastor Brian Ketchelmeyer. Find it at our website, issuesetc.org, or call Concordia Publishing House, 1-800-325-3040. Ask for Reading Isaiah with Luther. Pastor Peterson, take us into the first reading, which in this case comes from Revelation chapter 14, a passage that has a long pedigree in remembering the Reformation. Indeed. Revelation 14 reads, In those days I saw another angel flying directly overhead with an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who dwell on earth, to every nation and tribe and language and people. And he said with a loud voice, Fear God and give him glory, because the hour of his judgment has come, and worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. Uh, well, as you say, this has this pedigree, and it, it all goes back, as, as far as I know, to the funeral sermon that Bugenhagen preached in Wittenberg at, at Luther's death. And in it, Bugenhagen claims in that sermon that this passage is a prophecy of the Reformation and of Luther specifically. He says that Luther is this angel that God sent out to proclaim the gospel to all the world against the Antichrist. I mean, you just ought to know that there was quite a bit of weirdness at the end of Luther's life and just after it with how people viewed Luther and what they thought of him. And in some ways, I mean, I think it's pretty obvious that they were just replacing the Roman cult of the saints with Luther. So, for example, there was a fairly common superstition that if you had a picture, a painting of Luther in your house, it wouldn't burn down. I mean, that's obviously ridiculous, but some people believed it, or at least acted like they did. Luther, of course, never endorsed anything like that and never would have, and his colleagues didn't either. 
That being said, I mean, Luther and his colleagues definitely thought that he was special and even that he was a prophet of sorts. So back to the the passage here and Bugenhagen's claim, it's a bit outrageous exegetically and you have to sort of squint to sort of see it. However, I mean, because Luther doesn't go to every nation and tribe, he doesn't speak multiple languages, I mean, that sort of thing, nor does he fly. But Bugenhagen is right, at least in this much. And that is that every preacher of the gospel is a fulfillment of this, that God does not and has not sent angels like the seraphim and cherubim, the created angels, to proclaim the gospel around the world. I mean, the closest he's ever come to that would be the angels that proclaim the gospel to the shepherds in their field, but that's the last time he's done it. Instead, what God has done and instituted is using human beings as his messengers. And in fact, I think the best interpretations of the entire book of Revelation understand also at the beginning that the angels there that John is seeing and speaking of that belong to each city or church, actually the preachers, the pastors. And so every preacher of the gospel is really a fulfillment of this. God is sending his gospel out into the world, preaching this against the Antichrist. And in that sense, of course, Luther also fulfills this and in a most marvelous way. And I think in some ways this ought to be at the back of the minds of preachers as they prepare and as they preach, that the content of our sermons ought to be, fear God and give him glory, because the hour of his judgment has come. That message really is one that is, I think what Bugenhagen may have been trying to capture is the apocalyptic nature of the Reformation, that it isn't simply an accident of history. But in fact, the word of God at work in the last times, I think that's how he was trying to understand it. Yeah, I think absolutely. And, you know, this idea of urgency and, you know, for it is the last times. It it was the last times then and it's the last times now. And, And all of us ought to proceed with an awareness that no man knows when his own death comes or the Lord returns. The epistle reading is not surprisingly Romans chapter three, beginning at verse 19. What is it and what should we learn from it? Well, let's hear it. We read, Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. But now the righteousness of God has been manifest apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness, because in his divine forbearance he has passed over former sins, It was to show his righteousness at the present time, so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By law of works? No. But by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. I mean, this is a marvelous passage, you know, full of all sorts of Old Testament allusions. The mercy seat, that word propitiation, the uh, passing over of sins, the Passover lamb. I mean, there's so much here. But, but for today, I just want to think about how this 
these passages, these verses are so important to our understanding of the doctrine of justification, that is, how it is that God proclaims us righteous. And by the way, these passages are the heart of Paul's letter to the Romans, really his thesis. And these passages very much do drive our doctrine of justification. So, in the first place, it's cited by the Augsburg Confession in the kind of very classic, simple, and short Lutheran exposition of what is justification. So, I'll just read you that. Furthermore, it is taught that we cannot obtain forgiveness of sins and righteousness before God through our merit, work, or satisfactions, but that we receive forgiveness of sins and become righteous before God out of grace for Christ's sake through faith. When we believe that Christ has suffered for us and that for his sake our sin is forgiven and righteousness and eternal life are given to us. For God will regard and reckon this faith as righteousness in his sight, as St. Paul says in Romans 3 and 4. And then this phrase in there, which comes up twice in verse 21 and verse 28, apart from the law, is really kind of at the seat of the slogan, faith alone. So Paul says explicitly that the righteousness of God has been revealed apart from the law and that everyone who has faith in Jesus is justified by faith apart from works of the law. So Melanchthon cites these two passages four times in the Apology to the Augsburg Confession on the Doctrine of Justification. It's the heart of the Apology to the Augsburg Confession because it's the doctrine that matters and that drives all other doctrine. So here is kind of, I'm just going to read you a couple paragraphs, kind of Melanchthon's clearest claim based on these passages. And in fact, I mean, a pastor could take these paragraphs and just kind of make this his sermon and just riff on it, comment on it as he goes. But I'll just read them to you. We maintain that properly and truly, by faith itself, we are regarded as righteous for Christ's sake. That is, we are acceptable to God. And because to be justified means that out of unrighteous people, righteous people are made or regenerated, it also means that they are pronounced or regarded as righteous, for Scripture speaks both ways. Accordingly, we first want to show that faith alone makes a person righteous out of an unrighteous one. That is, it alone receives the forgiveness of sins. The little word alone offends some, even though Paul says in Romans 3.28, for we hold that a person is justified by faith apart from works prescribed by the law. And again in Ephesians 2.8-9, it is the gift of God, not the result of works, so that no one may boast. And again in Romans 3.24, justified by his grace as a gift. If anyone dislikes the exclusive particle alone, let them banish the exclusive terminology freely, not by works, it is a gift, etc., from Paul as well, for these two are exclusive. However, we reject the notion of merit. We do not exclude the word or sacraments, as the opponents falsely charge, for we said above that faith is sparked by the word, and we give the highest praise to the ministry of the word. To be sure, love and good works ought to follow faith. For this reason, they are not excluded as though they did not follow faith. However, trust in the merit of love or works in justification is excluded. What do we find in the gradual for Reformation Sunday? We get uh, Psalm 48, verses 1 and 12 and 13. Great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised in the city of our God, in the mountains of his holiness. Walk about Zion and go round about her. Tell the towers thereof. Mark ye well her bulwarks. Consider her palaces, that ye may tell it to the generation following. 
Alleluia, alleluia, for this God is our God forever and ever. He will be our guide even unto death. Alleluia. So you might get part of that between the first reading and the second, and then the alleluia between the second or the epistle and the gospel. I suspect that these passages have been assigned actually kind of as a nod to Luther's great hymn, A Mighty Fortress. I mean, great is the Lord, greatly to be praised. In the city of our God, in the mountain of his holiness, walk about Zion, bulwarks and towers and so forth. So whether or not it's related to that hymn, it is important for us to remember that we are at war with the devil and his angels and also with the world and our old sinful nature, and that we do, in fact, need protection. Unless the Lord returns, we are all going to face death, and so we need a guide. Christ himself, God in the flesh, is our protection and our guide, and this world is not our home. We need to know what's actually trustworthy, what's safe, and where our hope and our help comes from. We're looking forward to Reformation Sunday with Pastor David Peterson. There are two gospel readings possible for that Sunday. We'll get into the first one, Matthew chapter 11, after this. The Lord is our shepherd, and we are the people of his pasture. Why then do we still suffer in this life? Disease, loneliness, persecution... I'm Katie Shurman, and I'm collaborating with Cheryl Swope, Molly Hemingway, and a host of literary friends in He Restores My Soul, a book that takes an honest look at hardship and heartache in light of God's promises found in his word. He Restores My Soul is now available at emmanuelpress.us, E-M-M-A-N-U-E-L-Press.us. An average of 20 military veterans kill themselves every day. Project Operation Barnabas is a network of LCMS congregations who reach out to veterans and their congregations and their communities with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Operation Barnabas is a program of LCMS Ministry to the Armed Forces. Find out more at lcms.org slash armed forces. Serving those who serve. LCMS Ministry to the Armed Forces. lcms.org slash armed forces. Grace, faith, Scripture and Christ alone. You're listening to Issues Etc. Issues Etc. relies on a small group of faithful supporters called the Issues Etc. Reformation Club. These people have pledged to become monthly or annual contributors to Issues Etc. And this allows us to budget our expenses more efficiently. Now there are four levels of giving. The Confessor, $25 monthly or an annual gift of $250. The Apologist, $50 monthly or an annual gift of $500. The Reformer, $100 monthly or an annual gift of $1,000. And The Patron, $200 monthly or an annual gift of $2,000. Each Reformation Club member receives premiums like books, transcripts, and the I Have Issues t-shirt. You can join the Issues Etc. Reformation Club by contacting Craig. His email address, craig at issuesetc.org. Or you can call 618-223-8385, 618-223-8385, The Issues Etc. Reformation Club.
Welcome back to Issues Etc. I'm Todd Wilkin. We are looking forward to Reformation Sunday. Pastor David Peterson is our guest. David, there are two gospel readings possible for Reformation Sunday, the first of which is Matthew chapter 11. What do we find there? We read, At that time Jesus said to the crowd, From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, and the violent take it by force. For all the prophets in the law prophesied until John, and if you are willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. But to what shall I compare this generation? It is like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to their playmates. We played the flute for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not mourn. For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say he has a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, Look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by her deeds. So the point for Reformation here is that the kingdom suffers violence in this world, even as Christ himself suffered violence. And yet, the very violence that Christ suffered opened heaven to those who inflicted that violence upon him. Back to that sort of insane thing that's not really insane, but in fact is wisdom. Luther took the second phrase of that, the violent take it by force, to refer to the violence of faith, that is, to a faith that is strong, that insists that God keep his word, that will not let go, like the Syrophoenician woman. And then the second half of this pericope, I think, is actually even more interesting in terms of just everything, but, but also in terms of what it is to be justified and how, and how it is to be one who's been declared righteous by God. And that is because the second half of this actually has to do with reverence. So the children of this generation, they want to call the shots. They will decide when God should dance and when he should mourn. It's at their whim, and their tastes are supreme. Now, I hear this kind of thing all the time, sometimes even from my own members, when they find something in the Bible that doesn't meet their tastes, such as the subordination of women to their husbands or the fact that God hates sin and is wrathful against it and will send some people to hell. And in response to something that they don't like or doesn't meet their tastes, they'll say something like, my God wouldn't do that or my God wouldn't say that. And I always want to kind of step back in case I get struck by lightning because you don't get to put your own self-chosen dogma about who God ought to be or who your God is. We don't worship your God. We worship our God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who reveals himself in his word. And he gets to tell us who he is and what he'll be like and what he will do. And we do not get to twist it to meet our fancies nor to our theology. I mean, very much what the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod went through in the 70s was gospel reductionism, uh, kind of antinomianism that just didn't want to deal with the Bible. It took this hermeneutic of law and gospel and exaggerated it and applied it to everything so that the law was inferior and the gospel was for the real Christians who really wanted to be like Jesus. And then sort of, you know, anything goes. And they would use that against the Bible. You know, so, of course, women can be pastors because the gospel doesn't notice a difference between men and females, you know, that sort of thing. It was horrible. And it's really... I mean, it's blasphemous. 
And, of course, this is exactly the kind of blasphemy, the irreverence that's going on to John the Baptist and to Christ during their ministries. They hate John because he fasts. I mean, is it really because he fasts? It's really because he just doesn't, you know, he just doesn't do what they want him to do. He doesn't act according to their own ideas about things. And what Jesus warns us against is that the fate of those who have the Word of God and set themselves above the Word of God will be worse than the fate of Sodom and Gomorrah. You're held to a higher standard. Now, this is about reverence. It may not be immediately obvious how this is about reverence, but it is. Because what reverence is, is actually having the right response to what is in front of you. And C.S. Lewis explains this really well and gives a great example in the first chapter of The Abolition of Man. He tells a story of two men who come upon a spectacular waterfall, and one of the men says, well, that's nice, and the other one says, it's sublime. And then Lewis, I think Lewis is actually talking about somebody else, but in any case, the one who says it's nice is judged to have been irreverent. He's irreverent because he does not respond appropriately. And the kind of thing that Lewis is uh, battling there in the abolition of the man, is it's all about education and so forth, but it's this idea that there are no intrinsic values in the world. Everything is subjective, and we just kind of make it up in ourselves. And he says, no, there is objective good in the world, and this waterfall is good, and it is magnificent, it is incredible, and it requires a response from whoever views it. It's not a subjective judgment based upon each person's opinion and background and so forth. It's real. So to say that it's nice is to utterly fail to acknowledge what is real and to insist, despite reality, on one's own internal life as supreme, one's own tastes and so forth. So it, it's irreverent to hear the preaching of John the Baptist and not repent or bear fruits of repentance and to not look at the lamb who takes away the sin of the world. If you shrug off the law or you make light of your sins and the good works that you've been commanded to do, you are irreverent and you might go to hell because you don't get to choose these things. You're not in charge. God's word describes who we are, what we're to do, and the like. So in the similar way, we are required by the a sublime goodness of God to respond to the invitation to the wedding banquet and to rejoice in Christ's death and resurrection. There is a objective goodness of God's law and gospel that requires us to lament and rejoice, to confess and to praise, to listen, to let him be God, and for us to take our instruction from him. So we have to listen when the Bible is read. To not listen when the Bible's being read is irreverent. To not adore Christ in his bodily presence in the sacrament is irreverent. We're required to do that. If we have Holy Communion and we act like we're at, I don't know, a coffee house or something, that's wrong because there's an objective goodness in God's presence that he has come for us and we ought to recognize him as greater than us and we ought to be in awe and reverence for this. We ought to honor his ministers who bring us his word and absolution and, and, and so forth. I mean, the worship service in particular cannot ignore the presence of God or pretend that it is to us just no big deal, right? That we're just sitting with God around a campfire lighting farts and telling slightly off-color jokes because, you know, God's our buddy and he doesn't mind. He's, he, he minds, okay? He is not your peer. You are not his equal. He is our father, and we are to hang on his every word 
constantly desiring his approval. Not that we're terrified we don't have it, but we want it. We love it. And we want to be like him. And we want to be good like him. Now, this applies to more than the worship service. I mean, as Lewis points out, this also applies to waterfalls. And it applies to creation, you know, to to all of creation. But even more so, reverence also applies to holy marriage, to how spouses hold one another and treat one another as gifts to God. And it applies in all of our vocations, both in how we subordinate ourselves to those who have been placed over us, whether in marriage or at work or in the family or in the church, but also when we've been placed over others, how we treat them with respect and dignity and giving them the things that God wants them to have. So reverence really is recognizing reality. It's to recognize God's hand in creation and in the church and all around us and then giving it its due. So we should not approach our children as though they are burdens or, you know, stuff our faces at mealtimes as though our pleasure was that all that mattered and we're just hedonists. We should pause and give thanks. We should not climb onto an airplane without marveling at the ingenuity and gifts that God has given to men and so forth. And of all the things we ought to have reverence and awe for, the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, which is delivered to us in word and sacrament, ought to not simply fill us with just joy and happiness that God likes us, but it ought to fill us with this fear of God, this filial fear that is in awe and also on this side of glory does not want it to be taken away. The more commonly used gospel reading, I think, for Reformation Sunday is John eight thirty one. How does this fit in? It reads, So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. They answered him, We are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Well, I think in in many ways, this gospel is more closely tied to the themes of Reformation because it's tied directly to the theme of God's word that the Reformation is built upon. It's the word of Christ, which is that uh, if you abide in his word, the word of Christ, then you are his disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Well, the word of Christ is enshrined and delivered in the Holy Scriptures, right? The word of Christ, that in which we abide, is not an abstraction. It's not like the word of God is floating around somewhere as just a concept and then just comes to us somehow. I don't know. Some people, you know, in the history of Lutheranism and in the history of the Missouri Synod of the last 40 years have warned us against something like worshiping the Bible. I mean, you talk about a straw man. That's got to be about the dumbest one I've ever heard of. Nobody's ever worshiped the Bible. Nobody's ever thought we should worship the Bible. Obviously, we worship Christ. But here's the thing. When we treat the Bible with great reverence and we say we have to go by the Bible and not the ideas of men, this isn't worshiping the Bible. It's simply recognizing where is it that God speaks and then responding with appropriate reference for the word of God, recognizing that his speaking to us in clarity and in our own language even is a great gift and a great act of mercy even when he's telling us things we don't like or he's telling us the law. 
So to say something stupid like, I worship Christ and not the Bible, it really is just to say, well, I get to make up a Christ who looks just like me, and he speaks secretly inside my head according to this higher secret knowledge I have that's all love and tolerance and rainbows and who knows what. And he gets to tell me what I want to hear, and therefore, I'm free to ignore the parts of the Bible that my mouth and my penis and my ego don't like. Well, that's just wrong. Woe to you Pharisees, right? Christ has given you his word outside of yourself for this very reason, because yourself can't be trusted. So if you are to abide in his word, it needs to be his word as we actually know it and he has given it, not your imagination of what his word ought to be. If you abide in his word, in the Holy Scriptures, then you are his disciple and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free because there he speaks a trustworthy word and you can know it. So, again, I think this is related to filial fear, the, the, the fear and love of a son. Because you're not a slave to sin, nor are you a slave in the house of God, but you are a son, you are free. And you live in God's house as your own house. You come as children to their father, eager for his words of kindness and approval, but also eager for his instruction. How can I be like you? How can I grow strong? And, and the like. And you want to be a part of his kingdom. You're not trying to take his kingdom from him, but you want to be part of it. You want to help. You want to work with him and for him, to be like him, to like the things that he likes and so forth. Pastor David Peterson is our guest to be with us for a few minutes on the other side of this break into Hour 2 of Issues, etc. We are looking forward to Reformation Sunday. When we come back, we'll talk about the hymn of the day, Salvation Unto Us has come. Then a little later in Hour 2 of Issues, etc., Dr. Leonard Payton joins us for Issues, etc., Reformation Week, Paths to Lutheranism series. Today we'll talk about his path to Lutheranism from Calvinism. That's in Hour 2 of Issues, etc. I'm Todd Wilkin. Stay tuned. Educating a new generation of Lutherans, you're listening to Issues Etc. Hi, this is Pastor Clayton from Zion Lutheran Church of Mascuda, Illinois, a proud supporter of Issues Etc. Zion is a congregation firmly grounded in God's grace given in the Word and Sacraments where we treasure the timeless beauty of the liturgy. Zion is also a vibrant, young, family-friendly congregation where you would be warmly welcomed. Zion is located at 101 South Railway Street in Mascuda, Illinois, and we would love to share God's gifts of grace with you. For more information, please visit our website at zionmascuta.com. Looking for a foreign language program that will revolutionize your students' vocabulary knowledge and their understanding of grammar? How about a program that teaches critical thinking skills, too? Look no further than Memoria Press's Latin curriculum. Students of all ages can use these Latin study programs. Give your students the gift of Latin today. To order, visit memoriapress.com and save $5 on your next order by using the coupon code LPR9. Memoria Press, saving Western civilization one student at a time.
the ninth stanza of the hymn of the day for Reformation Sunday, Salvation Unto Us, has come, performed by the Lutheran Public Radio Choir. We're looking forward to Reformation Sunday. Pastor David Peterson is our guest. Pastor Peterson, let's go to the hymn of the day for Reformation Sunday. It's not a mighty fortress, as many would expect. It is Salvation Unto Us Has Come, that in my estimation better articulates the Reformation's theology of the two. Yeah, it's this great, wonderful hymn of the Reformation, Luther's favorite hymn. I agree with you. Is, is, I mean, I love A Mighty Fortress, of course, and uh, we, I definitely want to sing it on Reformation Sunday. But as the hymn of the day, that which stands between you know the gospel, the creed, and the sermon, you just can't do better than this, maybe ever, but especially on Reformation, because really what we've got here is a doctrinal thesis on justification given in verse form. And I've actually heard some people complain about this. They've said, well, you know, this isn't really a very poetic hymn. There's not much in it in terms of metaphor or imagery. You know, it's just kind of a straight up dogmatic statement. You know, this is who God is and who we are in him and what he's done for us. It doesn't do much to evoke the emotions of the singers and the like. Well, I mean, so what? Uh, There's so much in this hymn doctrinally. There's so much beautifully stated that, uh, truthfully, I don't even know how to comment on it. And But the great thing is I don't think I need to. It's not as though God's people are having trouble discerning what's going on in this hymn or what's being confessed. And that's because it's not very poetic and doesn't have much in way of metaphor and imagery. It's put so beautifully and simply that it doesn't need an explanation. Well, that's a glorious thing. It just tells us what God's done, how it is that we're saved, and now how we live in this good news and salvation. And my experience with this hymn as a parish pastor is that lay people don't seem to even notice or think about the fact that it's not that poetic. And they get quite excited about this hymn. They love it. They like to sing it because I think they love doctrine and they love to sing a doctrinal hymn, a doctrinal thesis that they can understand. And it doesn't feel burdensome to them. They get a big kick out of it as they should. I wanted to ask you here in the closing minutes of our conversation about the fact that Reformation Sunday is largely idiosyncratic. There are other Protestant denominations that observe something like it. I think it's, but it's mostly a Lutheran thing. What are your thoughts on that, especially given the fact that Lutherans do strive to make both their doctrine and their practice, especially in this case, their practice, Catholic in the truest sense of the term. Well, I mean, I think that there's a certain sense in which it's harder for other Christians who have benefited from the Reformation to celebrate it quite as fully as as we are able to, because they don't endorse and love all of the doctrines of the Lutherans and, and of Martin Luther. So, I mean, there is a certain sense in which they just aren't able to sort of sing with the same kind of full-throated joy and abandon that that we are all of the things they have to have more caveats than we do. So we can say some, I can say something like Luther did say some stupid things and do some stupid things, but I'm still embracing completely Luther's doctrine overall, especially as it is embraced and confessed in the book of Concord. And as the book of Concord points to the bondage of the will and uh, what's the other one, the great confession on the Lord's supper. So I mean, we do have an affinity with Luther that other Protestants aren't going to have quite as strongly. 
And uh, it is kind of idiosyncratic, and that was part of the reason I gave that defense. Why should we observe it? Because some people said it's not ecumenical. You know, it's it's it, you're you're supplanting a Sunday of the church here, and you shouldn't do that, and so forth. But I I think we should again because it is the most significantly historic event since the Council of Nicaea. It is very much a time when we can look back with hindsight and say. God was active through his word in a very specific way to reform the church, and we should receive this as a gift and be warned as well that, you know, we can become corrupted and we can lose the word of God if we neglect and abuse it. And so we need to be constantly realigned, reformed, corrected by the word of God and to stay in it. And, uh, you know, in terms of doctrine and practice, they do tie together here that all of the solas, in some sense, you know, they might be sloganeering and they might be polemic, but they are fitting for the daily life of the Christian, of who we are and how we conduct ourselves. You made a point early on that I want to come back to here at the end, because I think it is extremely important, especially for preachers, but also for the people who will hear them on this coming Reformation Sunday. It's difficult to talk about Reformation and make—it's a little artificial to make no reference to Luther or to those events that kind of surround the beginning of the Reformation, the posting of the 95 Theses, things like that. But what often happens, and I think it is mostly due to the laziness of preachers, I've done it, fallen into it occasionally, is to just kind of tell Luther's story, the comic book form of Luther's story, and uh, basically leave— the listener with just Luther kind of standing there just lowering the hammer from its position where he's nailed the 95 theses and that's where we leave them. You had said earlier, please make sure you preach the texts. Why is that so important? Well, because, and again, you know, this is really honoring Luther's memory in the most appropriate way, The really the way of reverence is that What we really celebrate and give thanks for is the doctrine of the Reformation, not the man Luther, and not his particular career and all those things. Now, we can't separate it, and and I agree completely. It would be bizarre to not mention any of these things. But ultimately, what we're thankful for is the doctrine of justification, for the proper distinction between law and gospel, for the Book of Concord. I mean, what has been given to us? And you know, we can we can use Luther as a lens to maybe organize the sermon or to remind us of how we'd lost this and it's been restored to us. But ultimately, we want to talk about the things Luther talked about, not about Luther. And we want to get at, you know, what it is it to be a child of God. And uh, that's the real heritage of the Reformation, not, you know, having a German surname and uh, not just, you know, having to have an ancestor who was really bold and impressive. Pastor David Peterson is pastor of Redeemer Lutheran Church in Fort Wayne, Indiana. He's departmental editor of Gottesdienst, the Journal of Lutheran Liturgy. David, thank you. Thank you, sir. When we come back, it's Issues Etc. Reformation Week. Our theme is Paths to Lutheranism. We'll explore the path from Calvinism with Dr. Leonard Payton. Stay tuned. Several Issues Etc. regular guests are candidates for leadership positions in the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Every LCMS congregation has received nomination forms for the president and vice presidents of the synod. 
Please encourage your pastor and congregational leaders to fill out and return these nomination forms before February 20th of 2019. Learn more at issuesetc.org slash nominations. issuesetc.org slash nominations. Concordia University, Wisconsin is the Lutheran Federal Credit Union Ministry of the Month. During October, if you open a Lutheran FCU loan to meet your financial needs, or if you use your Lutheran FCU credit card for a qualifying amount of purchases, Lutheran FCU will give you cash back and give that same amount of money to Concordia University, Wisconsin. Learn more at LutheranFCU.org. Lutheran Federal Credit Union. Good for you. Good for the church. LutheranFCU.org. Evangelical and Catholic. You're listening to Issues Etc. This is Pastor Clint Poppy, Good Shepherd Lutheran Church in Lincoln, Nebraska, a proud supporter of Issues Etc. Each month we host the Nebraska Lutherans for Confessional Study, a serious study of Lutheran theology. We generally meet on the fourth Thursday of each month from 9.30 to 2.30, and both clergy and laity are invited. There is no charge to attend. For more information, please call the church office or visit our website, goodshepherdlincoln.org, and click on the green NLCS tab. The church's music from the second century. The sixth century. The 16th century. The 21st century. The best of the church's music from the past 2,000 years. LutheranPublicRadio.org For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. This child, Jesus Christ, is the focus of every Christmas card that Emmanuel Press offers. Whether in stained glass, illumination, or classic works of art, Christmas cards from Emmanuel Press joyfully confess our Savior's birth with the words of Scripture and the poetry of hymns. Visit their website at emmanuelpress.us to create a custom assortment of cards. E-M-M-A-N-U-E-L press dot U-S.